Chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. There are three major final promises of hope that God is going to give at the end of Ezekiel. And this is the first one. This is the Valley of Dry Bones. Chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of Yahweh was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and placed me in the midst of the valley. Now, once again, God grabs Ezekiel, whips him up in the wind, and takes him to this valley, this dry, barren valley. Now, remember, there's no water it's dry, it's barren, he's going to see all these dead bodies. They're now just nothing but skeletons everywhere. So the idea is just absolute lifelessness, death, judgment, despair, and there's no coming back. No coming back from that. Nobody goes into a dry valley of heat and desert and no rain, seeing thousands upon of skeletons everywhere and thinking, I can do something with this. It's just absolute hopelessness. And that's the idea. He made me walk all around. And the, he made me walk all around them. And it was full of bones. He brought me out of the spirit of Yahweh and placed me in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. He made me walk around among them all. And I realized there were a great many bones in the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, "Son of man, can these bones live?" This is the right answer. I said to him, "Sovereign Yahweh, you know." Then he said to me, "Prophesy over these bones." And tell them, dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. This is what sovereign Yahweh says to these bones. Look, I'm about to infuse breath into you and you will live. And I will put tendons on you and muscles over you and will cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you and you will live. And then you will know that I am Yahweh. The word here for breath is ruach. Now, ruach means breath or wind or spirit. And what's interesting is that these words are interchangeable. And remember in the garden, God's spirit was hovering over the waters of the deep. The word was watery chaos, and so lifelessness. And then the ruach, the spirit of God, began to hover over it, and the waters turned to a different Hebrew word, which means life, life-giving water. The same, not the ocean, that is hurricanes and salt water, but the word that is used for springs and rivers and ponds for life that you can drink from. And then not only that, God then came and breathed into the body of Adam and gave him life. This is the same word of him subduing the storm of Noah and allowing everything to settle down and bring life again so that Noah and his family could step off the boat. And so he's intentionally tapping into two imageries here. First, the Garden of Eden. Lifeless bodies. They're going to have the breath of God poured into them. And that's producing a Garden of Eden. And the second imagery is the wilderness, where he brought Israel into the wilderness and adopted them as his own people and made them into a nation. And so by taking that beginning of life Garden of Eden, you had the breath of God, and combining it with the adoption of Israel in the wilderness, he's painting a new garden picture here a new garden picture. He says breath here, but later he's going to make it very clear that you can't interpret this as spirit because he's literally going to say that. He says, I'm going to reinflesh you. Verse 7, I prophesied as I commanded. There was a sound when I prophesied, and I heard a rattling of the bones coming together. Bone to bone, as I watched, I saw tendons on them. The muscles appeared and skin covered over them from above, and but there was no breath in them. Now, notice what makes this happen is Yahweh specifically said to him, prophesy. 
And he said, I prophesied the word of Yahweh. It's him speaking the word of God that makes this all start coming back together. The same word that spoke everything to existence in the garden. So God is intentionally with multiple strands linking back to the garden here. So I prophesied what is commanded. Sorry. Verse 9. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the corpse so that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an extremely great army. Now it's interesting that he uses the language army of these people. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are all the house of Israel. Look, they are saying, Our bones are dry, our hope is perished, we are cut off, there is no hope. Therefore prophesy and tell them, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says, Look, I am about to open your graves, and will raise you up from your graves, from your graves, my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves, and raise you from your graves, my people. I will place my breath in you, and you will live, and I will give you rest in your own land. And then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will act, declares Yahweh. I'm the most deathly, utterly hopeless scenario that you could possibly think of, and I'm going to breathe life back into it. I'm going to bring life back into it. And as we even look around the world right now, and we're watching the news, and we're thinking like, man, my goodness, it feels like this is the end. Now, I don't believe this is the end. But lots of people, but it could feel like it. It's the, end of, it's the end of something. Not the end of the world, but it's definitely the end of something. And you begin to lose hope. And a lot of people are losing hope. Suicides are skyrocketing in America and around the world right now more than ever before. And one can say, what can we do? What the hope? And God says, I'll breathe life into it. I'll breathe life into it. That's my promise. I can do something with anything. The word of Yahweh came to me, verse 15. As for you, son of man, take one branch and write on it. Now, so we already talked about that. Then take another branch and write on it, Judah and then Joseph. The branch of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associate with him. Join them as one stick and you will be in their hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us these things? Tell them. This is what sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I am about to take the branch of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associate with them. And I will place them on the stick of Judah, and make them into one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks of your right will will be in the hand of them, and then they will tell then they tell them, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I'm about to take the house of Israelites from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from around and bring them to their land, and I will make them one nation, the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over them, and they will never again be two nations and never again be divided into two kingdoms. That makes it clear these are nations. They will not defile themselves with their idols and their detestable things and all their rebellious deeds. And I will save them from all their unfaithfulness by which they have sinned. I will purify them and they will become my people and I will become their God. My servant David will be king over them. And there will be for them one shepherd from all of them. And they will follow my regulations and carefully observe my statutes. They will live in the land I gave them by the servant Jacob in which your fathers lived. And they will live in it. And they and their children, their grandchildren forever. David, my servant, will be prince over them forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a perpetual covenant, a never-ending one. Remember, Jeremiah already made clear that the Mosaic covenant was a temporary covenant. 
But this is going to be an eternal covenant, the new covenant that Jesus will make. And I will place my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And my sanctuary is among them forever. The nations will know that I am Yahweh and I have sanctified Israel. He makes it very clear that he's going to breathe his spirit into this nation and he's going to revive them into what he wanted them to be. And they will finally have this shepherd they've always wanted and needed. And this will be a new covenant that will be perpetual and everlasting. And so this is the promise of a new life entering into them. This is the circumcision of the heart. That's the first picture he paints. So the first picture is a dead judge nation scattered everywhere, coming back together and having the Spirit of God poured upon them and becoming the nation that God always wanted them to be without sin, with a perfect shepherd over them, a perpetual covenant they will will never violate ever again. But then the question is, what about the other nations? What about all the other nations? And that's where he gets to the second picture of Gog. Now, if you've ever read anything about Revelation, everybody has all these guesses about Gog, but Gog has already told to you what it is in Ezekiel. You don't have to guess who Gog is. Is it Russia? Is it all this kind of stuff? God tells you right here who Gog is. Gog comes from Magog, and we don't really know where these are on the map. These names are briefly mentioned in the Table of Nations in chapter 10 of Genesis. And we're told that they're descendants of Jephthah, and that's it. But we don't know where they're located in any kind of way. But I think that's the whole point. The whole point is that they're lost, as in we don't know where they're located, because there's something more than just a literal nation. Chapter 38, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, turn toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now Tubal was one of the descendants of Cain in that genealogy. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and bring you out with your own army and with all of your army and horses and horsemen, all of them fully armed, a great company with shields of different types, all of them armed with soldiers, Persia, Ethiopia, Pot, are with them, and all of them with shields and helmets. They are joined by Gomer with all of its troops, by Beth Targma from the remote parts of the north with all of its troops. Many peoples are with you. Gog can't be a future Russia that will one day come in the end times because God literally tells him to turn to Gog and he sees Gog and he's, this isn't a vision, he's facing it and he describes all these nations that already exist that have joined them. So he's talking about something that Ezekiel can see and experience and can relate to. Ezekiel doesn't say, I don't get what's going on. And the prophets are never scared to say, I don't know what's going on. So this is the thing. Now notice he says that they are all different nations are with you, Gog, and they have all different weapons and shields. So the idea is a a, a corporate unity. The idea is that Gog is all the nations. Now this is reinforced by the fact that when God keeps speaking, when he describes Gog, he uses the same language that he only uses to describe Babylon. In the same language that he only uses to describe Tyre. and the same language he only uses to describe Edom. And he merges them all to here. 
And what he's saying is that Gog is a metaphor. It's a typology. We talked about typology with Isaiah. He's a picture of nation that Ezekiel knows, but is big enough and allied enough with enough other nations. And then all the prophecies that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel have been saying about all the nations starts being used of this Gog. And the fact that God says that all these nations are there with all these different weapons and armies and shields suggests that Gog is a topology for all the nations. Any nation that opposes God. Any nation that opposes God. So he talks about how he's going to gather his people and he's going to protect them. He's going to cover them and protect them and judge them. And he talks about these nations and Ezekiel is supposed to prophesy against Gog, and he describes Gog, and he describes Gog advancing on the people of God. Gog is threatening to wipe out and completely kill the people of God. There seems no hope that they'll ever be rescued. And in chapter 39, verse 1, it says this, As for you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, This is what the sovereign Yahweh says, Look, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will lead you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. I will knock your bow out of your left hand and make your arrow fall from your right hand. I will fall, you will fall dead in the mountains of Israel and all of your troops and the people with you. I give you as food to every kind of bird and every wild beast and you will fall dead in the open field for I have spoken, declares Yahweh, Yah, sovereign Yahweh. I will send fire against Magog, Magog and all those who live securely in the coastlands and they will know that i am yahweh here's the other thing the fact that he says he calls him the prince chief like the ultimate chief or king over all these nations but the fact that he's using words like magog and gog that we have not seen in the bible since the table of nations when all the nations got started and the fact that he's using tubal as a name that we haven't seen since genesis 5 with the descendants of um, Cain. Now remember, what's very, very important to understand prophecy is called the law of first mention. And if you're reading prophecy or visions or dreams, if there's something that is used, then the first thing you must always do is go back to the first time that thing is mentioned. Now we kind of already do this subconsciously. As we call it context. So if you're dad or mom or somebody you know uses a word in a certain way you've never heard them use this new word before you ask them what it means and you realize they really like using this word a lot and you begin to realize that this is how they're using the word because this is the way they always use it and so it's this kind of contextual thing this god's the same way he's consistent in his vocabulary and he's really consistent in his metaphors and his imagery and typologies and so if you want to understand something, you go back to the first time. Now, if this is the first time, then God will clearly reveal in the context what he's talking about. But the first time that these are mentioned is the beginning of nations. Magog, Gog, Tubal, these are all names that are rooted in when the nations of the world first started coming into existence. So the idea that that also proves that Gog is all the nations because he's tapping back into the day that, remember, there was one nation, one people, and one language. And then after Tower of Babel, there were many nations, many languages, many people, all divided according to their language and their culture. And Gog and Magog represent the beginning of that. 
and they're like the first father that everything branches off of them. So that also shows you that this is supposed to be a typology for all the nations because the law of first mention tells you that. So the way he describes it and the words that he's using all point to that. Now, the other thing is he talks about them being destroyed in a battle, and then he describes them being burned. There's several judgments that are being poured on them. And then he says in verse 7, I will make my name holy, known in the midst of my people. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh and the Holy One of Israel. Realize that it is coming, and it will be done, declares sovereign Yahweh. It is the day that I have spoken about. There's a finality. Listen, as long as there's a pagan nation, they will always be defiling the name of God. But after he describes the destruction of Gog, he says, my name will no longer be profane. Because there will be no pagan nation, no pagan people to profane the name of God anymore. Verse 9, then those who live in the cities of Israel will go out and use weapons for kindling and shields, bows and arrows and war clubs and spears. They will burn them for seven years. Now, why would you burn all the weapons? Now, notice he says you'll go out in the fields and grab all the weapons of, all, of Gog, and they will burn every weapon as fuel. There's no way that there will never be weapons in the world as long as there's sin and war. So the destruction of Gog is a finality. If Gog just... Now, most people like Tim LaHaye and a lot of those super like end times kind of people are like Gog is Russia. But when Russia's defeated, there's still Afghanistan, there's still China, and there's still like, why would you be burning all your weapons when Russia gets destroyed? There's an absolute finality to this, that God's name will no longer be profane because there is no pagan person to do it, that you can burn every weapon in the world because there is no one to attack you or to defend yourself against anymore. The idea is that this is the end of evil. This is the end of pagan nations. This is the end of the Tower of Babel and what it produced. And so what God is right, and the fact that, remember, he judges them by dying in war and being eaten by birds, and then he describes them as being burned by fire, and then later he'll describe them as being swallowed by an earthquake. Repeating that judgment means that it is absolute and final. There's a finality to that. And they'll burn the weapons for how many years? Completion. That this will be a complete elimination of war and weapons. They will not need to take wood from the field or cut down the trees from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons. They will take the loot from those who looted them and seize the plunder from those who plundered them, declares sovereign Yahweh. Now, the equivalent today is we will melt down every gun that there is and use them to make furnaces and ovens, I don't know, whatever. On that day, verse 11, I will sign Gog a grave in Israel, and it will be the valley of those who travel east of the sea. Now, notice moving eastward, rebellion against God. Sea is the image of chaos and rebellion against God. And judgment, all these are metaphorical pictures of everything that opposes God. It will block the way of the travelers, and there will be the, they will bury Gog and all of his horde, and they will call it the valley of Hamongog. For the seven months, Israel will bury them. For seven months, Israel will bury Gog, a finality, a completion to everything that is Gog in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will be a memorial for them on that day. I magnify myself, declares sovereign Yahweh. They will designate men to scout continually throughout the land, burying those who remain on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. There's a cleansing of the ground that is happening too. Okay, 
Why cleanse the ground that is going to be defiled by the next war, the next nation? They will search for seven full months. And the scouts will survey in the land, and they will see human bone, and they will place a sign by it until those that are assigned for burial do have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. A city by the name of Hamath will also be there. They will cleanse the land. Now this is important, because all these sevens, notice we have seven sevens. And that's important because in the book of Revelation, we have seven, we have three, sorry, we have three sevens. In the book of Revelation, we have three sevens on the judgments of God. Because seven is completion and three is redemption. So the redemption of God is finally complete. And that's all suggested here. And they will cleanse the land because nothing will be defiled anymore. There is an absolute end of everything here. You put this in the greater context of the prophets in the Bibles too, and one of the things you're going to notice, especially when we get the post-secular prophets, God has already made it clear with the fall of a nation, there will always be the rise of another pagan nation. When one king dies, a new king will rise up. This is the hope. Daniel makes this point. There will always be another pagan nation that rises up after the defeat of another nation. There will all, and Zephaniah is going to make this clear in his book. It's already been made clear in other books. The typology is there's always another nation, period, all the time. So even if God judges Russia and destroys it, the land, there will only be another nation will pop up. And all the sevens here, the, the finality of a cleansed land, the destruction of weapons, a people in their land, all communicates the idea that Gog is all the nations. And the idea is that this is the end to all evil, all war, all rebellion against God. And of course, Revelation picks up on that. Now, could Russia be the head of all this? Maybe. There's always going to be a nation that's the head. But the point is not just it's the head, it's not one. The point is it's everything. It's everything. And that's important because Revelation doesn't use all this final, complete Genesis-like language because Revelation assumes that you've already digested it from Ezekiel. Why waste your time repeating things? Okay, as a teacher, you know, you will sometimes allude back to something you've taught before. You might summarize something, but when you go to the next thing in math or the next thing in English, you don't reteach all the things that you've already taught before because it's a waste of time. You'll never get to the new thing if you're constantly reteaching everything all the time. What you do is you teach things and you set up key words or pictures or, or, or functions and then when you go into the new thing, you allude back to that. You hint to it to re-trigger the memory. Oh, yeah, now I know what I'm talking about. And you repeat those words over and over and over again so that the kids get that, and then they're reminded of it, and everything else gets flooded back in, hopefully, and you go on with a new concept. And that's what Revelation is doing. Why rewrite the book of Ezekiel when he can just allude to God? And because Gog has never been mentioned except for two places already, then that's easily going to be triggered. And you're remembering two things. And then you go into Revelation, and you're thinking about completion, finality, no more war, no more sin, peace in the land. Now notice that this is succeeded by Israel being restored and the Spirit poured upon them. So they're in a new land, and the Spirit's poured upon them, and they've become a new people, and then now all the pagan nations have been destroyed. 
Now, one of the things we're going to see over and over again is that God is going to constantly say, I'm going to bring all the nations from every tribe, every language into this Israel. But then he's going to say, I'm going to destroy all the pagan nations. And you're like, how can you do both, God? How can you bring all the pagan nations to Israel, but at the same time destroy all the pagan nations? Here's how he does it. Because Ezekiel, with the Valley of Dry Bones, chapter 36 and 37, said, I'm going to bring my people from all the nations scattered, and I will bring them back in the land, and I will make a perpetual covenant with them, and they will be my people forever, and I will breathe my spirit into them. And then he goes and says, I'm going to destroy all the nations. How can he do it? Because the people of faith that would have accepted Christ have already left those pagan nations and joined the new people of God. And so what God is saying is, I'm going to establish my new covenant in Christ, and I will pour my spirit upon you, the Holy Spirit, and I will begin to bring my people, the real people, the sheep that recognize my voice, and I will begin to suck them out of all the nations. And yes, they might be Chinese, and they might be African, and they might be Russian, and they might be American, they might be whatever, 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 but their primary identity is going to be switched to the kingdom of God. And they're going to be every tribe, every language, every ethnicity, every gender, every social status and wealth. And they're all going to come into this new Israel as the gospel goes out, the spirit of God goes out, people come into the new covenant, and they're going to become a new people. And then once everybody has come into that, then God is going to destroy the pagan nations. Now, Revelation makes it clear that God can also bring more people out of the nations as he's destroying the nations. But the idea is that's what's happening. The people of faith or the people who would have faith or want to have faith will lead the pagan nations as he's destroying them and judging them. And the sheep and the goats will be separated. And that's what you have with Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. They're coming out of their pagan nations and they're no longer dead. They have a new life born again. And Ezekiel 38 and 9, where he's talking about destroying the nations. It's all happening simultaneously. And this is the picture that he's painting. This is the hope. And one day, the Spirit of God will be finally poured out on everybody. And the evil pagan nations will finally be destroyed. And that's what we refer to the already not yet. But Ezekiel doesn't have the already yet. He just has the nothing. And God is promising the already, and now we are beginning to see that. We're seeing the valley of dry bones. We're seeing people becoming born again as they're accepting Christ. And the Spirit of God is being poured into them, and their lives are being changed. That's happening right now over these thousand years and going on. At the same time, we're seeing nations being judged and condemned. And they're going to fall in Afghanistan and Saddam Hussein and the Khmer Rouge and maybe even America. And they're all being brought down until it's absolutely final. And it will be in. And one day Christ will come back and bring a finality to all that stuff. And that's what Ezekiel is painting a picture of. So Gog is the world. And the Valley of Dry Bones are the people who are ready to accept Christ and become a part of the perpetual covenant. And that's the picture of this painting here. And you need to understand that when you get into the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation taps into the Valley of Dry Bones again 
with the imagery of the 144,000 are sealed. And he taps into Gog again with Gog being destroyed and he calls it Babylon. And he talks about it being destroyed. And so when you get to Revelation, those are the imageries that you need to keep in your mind when you go into that because he's picking up where Ezekiel already established things. The only thing he's doing is he's changing the language just slightly to speak to a Greek audience, but the language still is rooted in the Hebrew Bible. He adds just a few other words, but notice that he's not introducing new things. It's like the word Messiah means anointed, but then we start using the word Christ, which is the Greek word for anointed, but they still mean the same thing. So now he's no longer talking about Gog. He's talking about Babylon Gog because Babylon becomes the new typology for all the nations, anything that opposes God. So this is what he's doing. This is what he's setting up. Gog being all the nations is kind of a hard argument to make when you're just reading Revelation. But when you read Ezekiel, I think it's so clear. All the sevens, the destruction of weapons, all that kind of stuff, the perpetual covenant, the the, the repetition of the judgment of Gog being final, all that makes it clear is this is all the nations and it's the end of all evil. That's why you have to import that into Revelation. You have to import that into Revelation. And Revelation being the last book of the Bible also means, I've gone through Revelation every multiple times and I can tell you everything that John sees has a law of first mention. Good communicators don't teach you brand new concepts you never heard on the last day of school. <laughs> okay. I'm, there have been some people have done that. But if you really want your kids to walk away knowing something, the last week or so is reinforcement or it's tying things together. There might be new knots you're tying, but there's no new ropes that are being introduced. Like, you might be like, okay, now we're going to tie this new knot, and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, it all comes together. I see it now. But the ropes have been there all along. And so you don't get to Revelation, the last revelation of God, the final book on his whole plan of redemption, and introduce a whole bunch of new ropes, and then just walk away. The law, the revelation is all old ropes being tied together in their final, last tapestry at the end of the rug, so to speak. I don't know if that works, but I'm going for it. That's, and then you need to understand that. And so many people see Revelation as a standalone book, and that's not good. Now, it feels like we're going into a Revelation study, but we're not. But I had to jump on that horse for a little bit because it's a big pet peeve of just... There's two major sins that we do with books of the Bible. Well, one major sin is... Two major sins is we take things out of their cultural context and try to interpret it as Americans. And the other one is we violate the, the biblical context. But you see those two things most violently and abhorrently done with the book of Genesis and creation and the book of Revelation at the end. We, we, we violate context and cultural understanding with those two books more than any other books in the Bible. And I don't know why. But the other thing, too, is the law of proportion also says whatever you spend the most time on is the most important thing to you. So if you say, like, my family and God are the most important thing to me, but then I'm like, okay, so what did you do this week? You're like, well, on Sunday I watched Sunday night football the entire day 
Well, I went to church, and I came home and watched Sunday night football and Sunday afternoon football. And then on Monday, I went to work, and then I watched Monday night football. And then on Tuesday, I went to work, and I went to a Bible study. Say, I love God. <laughs> Wednesday, I went to work, and then I came home, and I worked on fantasy football stuff. And then, like, on Thursday, I went to work and came home, and I spent some time with the family and went on a date night. And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I flew out to Las Vegas for fantasy football tournaments. I would say, I don't know if family and God are the most important thing to you because you spend most of your day at work, which nobody can do about that, and then everything else is football. And so the same thing with God. So he spends two chapters on creation and one book on the end of the world, and we spend so much time studying those things. Now, should we? Yes. But the law of proportion says there's also 65 other books of the Bible that don't talk about that stuff. So that's, that's kind of why I jump on this, because I feel like we put our biggest sins of interpretation in those two baskets, and it just drives me nuts all the time as a culture. And I think we're kind of moving away from that, because I think we're kind of sick and tired of learning about Revelation <laughs> as a culture. The 50s and 60s and 70s really beat that horse big time. That maybe we've been away from it long enough that we can kind of come back with it with fresh eyes. So I remember when I was growing up, everybody knew about Tim LaHaye and his interpretation. Now I teach my students, and they know nothing about Revelation. They don't know any views. They don't know anything, which kind of be good and bad at the same time. So 